on the Indie Live Radio daytime show is James Kelly from Scott Goes Pop. Hello, James. Hiya, how are you? Very well. Yeah, we're so, doing okay. We're very glad that you're sparing time for us because you are extremely busy at the moment. You are writing two articles every day for The National. I believe you're now up at number 51 today. You were doing Edinburgh Western and Edinburgh Central today, is that correct? Uh, yeah, that's probably yeah. That was probably the one I did, the ones I did yesterday. Yeah, because today I've been working on um, what was it, Aberdeen Donside and Aberdeen Central. Yeah. So it's every every day it's something completely different. Yeah. So we've been following those, and you've also branched out into our territory. I believe you're doing podcasts now. You're doing interviews. I, 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 we interviewed Alex Salmond last week, and I think. Oh yeah. You interviewed him recently. How did you enjoy interviewing um, the former first minister? Yeah, it was all a bit sort of uh, a bit panicky last minute stuff. I didn't know it was going to happen until just before it did happen. So yeah, I had to quickly get some questions together. But yeah, it was fun. How did you find it? We really enjoyed it. Yeah, 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 uh-huh. yeah. We yeah we did. And um, I mean, he was in London. I thought he'd be up in the northeast somewhere. All right. Lon- it just it was the day he'd done that big international news press. All right. Yeah. Uh-huh. So he it was quite late on in the evening. Um, but yeah, well, it's sort of interesting because Val has been forwarding me emails that um, she's had, and people were saying they'd enjoyed it now they're not necessarily people who are going to vote alba yeah but they were sort of saying they what they appreciated was that it was an interview where he had space to talk Uh and develop something and he wasn't getting you know a bbc person or you know sky or something pushing and pushing and pushing him and uh, and then and, and I, of course, there's a place for that. I'm not saying there isn't, but I just oh, thought yeah. that was an interesting comment that we've that we've had. Yeah, I think at Alapa have been quite clever in terms of using the new media as a way of bypassing the problem they've had with the mainstream media. So, I mean, I think we have to bear in mind that they're they're kind of well, they're not using us, but it's like a kind of mutual interest sort of thing. It's good for us, and it's also good for them because they're not they can't get the coverage any other way so that's a very useful way for them to to bypass that problem yeah i think that i think that's true and and uh, val and i have we've we've done interviews with well two of the women who are standing in the glasgow uh-huh. region and the, where were the other two women standing one was west of scotland val wasn't it the other two candidates were caroline McAllister from the west of scotland and lynn anderson from central scotland that's right yeah what i was just a way to say there, James, was that I think that that barrier of the media will hit Alaba, though. I mean, oh, yeah. Oh, well, yeah. That's, I mean, that's one of their two problems. The other problem, of course, is on the ballot paper. They don't stand out particularly well because the Electoral Commission refused to process their logo and also their um, their slogan or their description. So they would have had, I presume, some reference to Alex Salmond or to or to supermajority or something like that. And they would have had a lovely logo with the with the Scottish flag. And instead yeah. they, they don't really stand out very well at all. So that I, I think know. that will be a problem for them. Yeah, yeah I pulled yeah. in a ballot paper um, the other day. Um, I applied for a postal vote just in case I was isolating. Uh-huh. And 
they all it just says is Alba Party. Yeah. You see, there's no logo, whereas the SNP have got their logo in other parties as well. Yeah, every other party. Every, that, oh, yeah. certainly in my region, every other party has yeah. got a logo. Yeah. And the SNP says, I think, um, Nicola Sturgeon for First Minister. So I think that that will handicap them, as you see. Yeah. That was actually a, a question that we were going to ask you about, about Alba. Before I, before I go on to that, though, I, should, I was going to start by singing your praises because there's been quite a lot of bad feeling among bloggers and so on. And what jumped out at me was something I saw that the wee ginger Doug wrote about you the other day, which was, James is a valuable asset to the independence cause, one who remains calm and clear-headed while others descend into a hysterical espousal of conspiracy theories and preach a council of despair, seemingly prepared to abandon any efforts to win independence. So I, I thought that would I would start off with that glowing tribute from Paul Kavanagh. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if that was before or after I came out for Alpha. I think it might have been before. <laughs> I'm sli- I'm slightly, I was very slightly embarrassed because Paul has been really kind in pushing my fundraisers and you know promoting me and saying nice things about me, and then. Then I kind of <laughs> came out for Alaba, which he doesn't really approve of. So uh, I hope he doesn't feel like I've let him down. But obviously, we all have to make our own choices. I'm yeah. pretty sure he just wrote that quite recently. But all right, okay. I looked at the date, but my memory might be playing tricks on me. So, and um, we did have a question from Jerry Mulvena in Edinburgh, and he's asking: In 2016, James was recommending a both votes SNP approach. But at this election, he's asking pro-Indy voters to consider voting Alapa in the regional vote. What has shifted for him? And does he not see the Greens as a good regional option for most regions? Well, one thing I was quite clear about in 2016 was that I was not saying both votes SNP. People were quite keen to put that in my mouth constantly. I remember people who criticised me constantly, you're both votes SNP. And I never said that. I never said I was both votes SNP. I mean, I did. Personally, I did uh, vote for the SNP twice. But what I was really saying was that the way the electoral system works, it's very difficult to game. It's very difficult to vote tactically on the list. You can vote tactically in the constituencies, ironically, but you can't really vote tactically on the list without it being quite a big gamble for a variety of reasons. This what I was really saying was that people should vote for their first choice party on the list, whatever that party is. But obviously, obviously, my blog is was mostly speaking to SNP supporters. So it obviously it comes across as if I'm, as if I'm, um, you know, pushing both votes SNP. But really the point I was making was the way the electoral system works, you should vote for your first choice party on the list. And I haven't changed my mind about that. I simp- I've simply got a different first choice party this time. Can I ask you something? Um, do you think, I mean, mostly the kind of discourse around Alba, it's just Alba now with the other two having withdrawn, is mostly about SNP vote in the list of wasted vote. Um, do you think that's the only kind of reason that brings folk to think in terms of voting for ALBA? Or, or are there other, maybe even better reasons for doing it? Yeah, I mean, I'm not total, I'm not terribly sold on this uh, supermajority idea in the sense I don't think we actually need it. Um, so uh, all, all we need is a majority for independence yeah. in the parliament we've already got that and when hopefully we'll keep it there's no guarantee that we will but yeah I, th- I think obviously the better reasons for voting for Alipa are are to do with strategy for for gaining independence you know broadening the the range of options the SNP have got very stuck on this 
one path which is dependent on somebody else's permission. So I think uh, Alipa would um, sort of broaden the range of options, sort of broaden the conversation about how we can actually achieve independence. So that's certainly one reason for voting for them. Obviously, there are other people, uh, women's rights is, is a big issue. Um, the, the, the whole trans issue, that's been a sort of culture war within the SNP. And now it's now it's more like a culture war between the SNP and Alipa because most of the people who had the... Uh, the alternative uh, point of view have left the, left the SNP now and have joined Alipa. Not everybody, of course. Joanna Cherry's still there. A number of people are still there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, I think that's what I've been realising. Actually, it's as Val and I have been talking to, um, well, we've been talking to some of the Alba candidates, but we've also been talking to Green candidates and SNP candidates as well. And it's just been kind of trickling into my uh, mindset that there are other reasons for um, yeah, picking one of those for a regional vote that have got nothing to do with the the supermajority or the, the so-called wasted vote. Personally, I, that, I I don't go along with it as a wasted vote at all. But you know, I know a lot of people do. So, so that's interesting what you're saying there. I mean, in terms of the wasted vote, I mean, the, the problem is that any vote could be wasted. Almost any vote, but just it's just because I mean, at the moment, Alipa are falling between two stools and the opinion polls. They're sort of hovering between about 2% and 6%, which is the sort of level where they could possibly get no seats at all, or they might only get one or two. So, you know, there's a risk that your vote for Alipa could be wasted. But, I mean, you can quite clearly see there's also a risk that your vote for the SNP could be wasted. So it's kind of six of one and half a dozen of the other. And with the Greens, it's a bit more complicated, but there's certainly no guarantees even with them. Yeah. There, there have been times in the past where it looked like they were heading for several seats and they ended up with two. So um, there's never, you know, with any with any vote for any of the pro-independence parties on the list, you can never actually be sure that it's going to be a meaningful vote in terms of producing yeah. seats. Although it will be a meaningful vote in terms of, you know, a broader mandate and to determine to display a mandate for independence or for a referendum, you need a popular vote as well as seats. And so exactly. even if yeah. even if you don't win any seats with your vote, you're still contributing to that part of the mandate. Earlier, Val mentioned, you know, you've been doing these um, sort of snapshots of um, constituencies for, for the national. I, I, I haven't I haven't read them all. I have read some of them. I was just wondering has anything kind of stood out for you in any of those? I mean, maybe a particular constituency or patterns that you can see because doing that kind of broad view of them? Things do sort of jump out and I think, oh, I completely forgot about that. You know, like a result I completely forgot about or an aspect of the result I completely forgot about. Um, I mean, obviously, these the additional member system uh, that is is used for the Scottish Parliament is... It's a bit odd and uh, it sort of produces some anomalies. And so, I mean, one of the obvious problems with it is that sometimes if a constituency seat changes hands, it's just the same as in a first past the post election. And that means the party that gains the seat has one seat more and the party that loses the seat has one seat fewer. But on other occasions, all that happens is the list cancels that out. And so it, the actual constituency result makes no yeah. difference whatsoever. Exactly. And so a, a yeah. lot of these, a lot, you know, you can dramatize some of these big constituency contests, but they're not going to make any difference because yeah. the list will cancel it out. But another another examples, obviously Edinburgh Central, which I did uh, the other day. Yeah, that's like that's an example where certainly in 2016 uh, the Conservative gain that was a real gain or it was a real loss for the SNP because they did not get a seat on the list to compensate for it. And that was contributed to the loss of the majority. Mm. And it's possible 
I mean, the assumption is the SNP are probably unlikely to get a seat in Lothian on the list again this time. And so the result in Edinburgh Central will matter. Mm-hmm. So, you know, some of the some of the constituency ma- some of the constituencies matter and some of them don't. Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask you a question? Um, although we don't want to like totally focus on Alba, but obviously they are a you know, a real force that's something brand new. And quite a few of our listeners have asked questions. So one uh-huh. of them uh, approximate and you've you've touched on that already that well I've got a couple of questions here they're both related and and you've actually sort of touched on this already I wonder if you'd like to just say a bit more one is from Susan in Glasgow and she says uh, approximately what percentage does the Alaba party need to be polling in each region by the time the election comes to credibly expect to pick up one or more list seats. And the other one is also from somebody in Glasgow, John Doherty. And John is asking, what is the average showing of Alex Salmon's party in the polls so far? And are they a positive or negative influence on the pro-independence vote? I hope that's not too much in the one question. I can go back over it. Um, Okay, well, uh, the... Roughly five or six percent in a region would probably get you a seat, but it does vary. Uh, and this is one of the other strange things about our system, because in a lot of these list systems and proportional representation systems around the world, there's just a sort of a fixed threshold. So if you get five percent or four percent, you automatically get representation at that point. But in, in our system, it just it kind of depends on how the other parties do. And so it's a kind of you don't you don't know exactly what you're going to need, but it's probably going to be around about five or six percent in each region. Yeah. Uh, OK, right. I've already forgotten what the second question was. Wait, OK, sorry. I, I, I thought I was asking you too much at once. Um, the other question from John Doherty was, what is the average showing? You, you mentioned it varied between two or three percent up to oh, five. Yeah. What's the average showing of Alba Party in the polls so far, and are they a positive or negative influence on the pro-independence vote? Well, so I think I worked out. I think I, I think I worked out the exact average uh, for all the polls so far, and it was four percent, which yeah. might, might surprise people as being slightly higher than they think. But it's because of the two panel-based polls, which had uh, Alba on six percent. Yeah. So this is one of the controversies, and uh, people who are sort of sneering about the possibility of Alapa winning any seats or pointing to these panel-based polls as if they're totally unbelievable and not credible. And the point they're making is that panel-based are presenting the options in a slightly different way. So a lot of the firms, what they do is if, you, if you've got a new fringe party, they don't put it as, they don't put that party in the sort of main menu of options. So they'll, uh, they won't ask you about that party unless you say you're going to vote for some other party. If you ignore the main options and then you take some other party, then they'll take you to another menu of options, and then you'd be asked about the Alpha party. So panel base, certainly in the two polls they've done so far, they haven't done that. They've presented Alpha and also George Galloway's party, All for Unity, uh, on the on the main menu the main of options. Menu, yeah. And so that's that's produced a um, you know bigger share of the vote, about six percent for for Alpha, which is enough to win a good number of seats if that was accurate. And so people are arguing that this is. Uh, uh, the, yeah. you know the panel-based polls are not credible but it's a, it's a difference of view I mean panel-based are not doing that for no reason they they obviously feel that that's going to produce a more accurate result yeah. so there's a difference of view between the two between the various firms and I don't think we can automatically assume that panel-based are wrong and everybody else is right yeah yeah I mean what we really need is a few more polls from the other companies don't we and see where Alba comes in on those well, the others that, are, yeah yeah that first panel-based one they actually said Alba 
led by Alex Salmond. Yeah, they didn't. I, I think that was, again, the people who were sort of trying to present that that result as completely unbelievable were saying, oh, it's because his name was mentioned. And so when the second poll came out and it was exactly the same result, everybody said, oh, that'll mean that his name was mentioned. And it and turned out it his name was not mentioned yeah, yeah. and it was exactly the same result. Yeah. So uh, I, you, you can't jump to conclusions about why why panel base are producing a higher result yeah, than the others. Yeah, exactly. I went I went on uh, to their actual details spreadsheet this afternoon to find that, that very thing out. I know Val's got more questions, but can I also just a wee follow-up to, to, to those two that we've had already? Because, yeah, 5 6%, they'll, they'll probably start to, to be able to get a seat. But, I mean, you've mentioned this yourself. Actually, what might well happen is that what they do is they take what's currently a green list seat. So, yeah, Alaba have a, a, list, uh, a list seat, but the overall number of pro-indie seats are actually the same because the, the Greens have lost. So how, do you have any sense about how high they have to be falling before um, they start to take seats off Labour or Tories? I, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's quite as simple as that because, well, certainly if the polls are accurate, and if, yeah, as I said earlier, there have been occasions in the past where the Greens have been severely un, overestimated. And they've ended up with much with a much worse result than we thought. But certainly, if the polls are accurate, the, the Greens are doing well. And certainly, in the panel based, the most recent panel based poll, uh, the Greens were doing well at the same time as yeah. Alapa. Yeah. Um, and so the Greens were getting what was the nine percent of the vote. And so, if that was the case, um, you know, I don't think there's any particular reason to think that Alapa would be robbing the Greens of seats because the Greens would have enough on their own right because they'd be. Right. In a lot of the regions, they'd be well over the five or six percent they need. So you know, you could get Alpha winning seats and the Greens in, in, in the same region. Yeah, right. You've already answered John Doherty's other question. That was about the effect that mentioning Alex Salmon by name would have on the polling, and you've already answered that. So I've got another question from Fiona and Clark Manager, and she says, "I'm curious about the old adage about polls being used to influence opinion rather than reflect opinion." Do you think that's true? That's a very sort of wide question, but for somebody who analyses polls all the time. Well, I, I think you have to sort of separate out the sort of the main voting intention questions from the supplementary questions, because the supplementary questions are often going to be a little bit leading or certainly they're going to be sort of framed in a way that are that is helpful from from the point of view of the person that has commissioned the poll. Um you know, for example, Wings Over Scotland has commissioned many polls about the trans issue and has produced results that um, that show that, uh, you know, there's tremendous opposition, huge public opposition to, uh, to, to self-identification for trans people. And yet there was a poll a few, a few weeks ago that sort of framed the question a bit differently and then produced a completely opposite result. And the sort of people are jumping on this and saying, oh, this this shows that Scotland is an incredibly tolerant country that wants nothing to do with this with this uh, with this wings nonsense. And but it's just it's just to do with to do with the way the question is framed. I mean, it's exactly the same people just giving different answers because yeah. the, the way the question is framed, it's like the uh, it's like the sketch, the famous sketch in Yes Minister, where uh, where uh, Sir Humphrey leads his uh, leads Bernard's uh, down down a garden alley, down a garden path and gets into the give completely contradictory answers on whether he wants to introduce national <laughs> service. It's, 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 you know, it's the same principle as that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I could remember that one. Um, 
so we've got another question. Um, it's also from Fiona um, in Clark Manager, and she's asking, how well do online polls reflect the views of older generation, the ones more likely to vote but less likely to be online? I'm not, that's obviously not true of all of the older generation because some of us spend our lives online, but there is a point there. Yeah, I mean, online polling shouldn't really work because it's you, you're not getting a completely random sample. It depends on who volunteers and you're interviewing the same people over and over and over again. So it shouldn't work, but it's just it's just been found in practice that it can be made to work. But um, yeah, I remember back in the day when YouGov started, because YouGov were the first major online pollster, and they, they were having particular trouble getting um, getting older people. And so they had to sort of try all these special wheezes. They would sort of, you know, bring people in sort of with offers of competitions or bingo or whatever, you know. So they, they but I mean, this, that was many, many years ago. And I don't think they have any particular problem uh, oh. getting older people these days. It's more a question of um, probably younger people. They have more trouble getting these days. Um, but I mean, you know, I've, I think there used to be a problem that the online polls were overestimating UKIP. I mean, because what happens is you get the more politically engaged people. Yeah, exactly. uh, so, you, you know, there, there are these problems. But of course, they they spot these different trends and they correct for them. So, you know, over time, they can sort these problems out. But, you know, I, I suppose with a new party like Halipa, that might be a problem because if you've got particularly politically committed people in the sample, then that might potentially overestimate Alapa, for example, and you wouldn't know that until the election happened because we haven't had that an election yet with Alapa as an option. So yeah. Uh, yeah, I suppose with a new entry, it's going to be a bit of a, maybe a little bit more uncertainty over the accuracy of the results. Yeah. Have you had, do you have any impression, somebody was asking me today what, what I thought about um, if there would be a good turnout or a very low turnout for this poll. Is there anything that you've done in your polling or in your general analysis that gives you any idea what the turnout might be? I mean, it's, it's a unique situation in the middle of a pandemic, isn't it? Yeah, I think we're in totally uncharted territory. And so, I mean, you, you could look at it either way because um, there's been a bigger... There's been an increased number of applications for postal votes, so you know, a vastly increased number of applications for postal votes. I think most people who get postal votes actually use them, so that might boost the turnout. Another factor, of course, is the restrictions are being eased at quite a quite a rapid rate, and so there might be fewer disincentives for people to actually turn out on the day if they don't have a postal vote. So I, I think we could we probably could end up with quite a decent turnout, but you know that the level of postal votes should make everybody nervous because it's always a bit of an unknown factor. And of course, it was the famous example in Glenrothes where, you know, suddenly the postal votes came in and it was a massive labour advantage. And there's always been a bit of a suspicion about how that happened. And, you know, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but postal votes, it's not hard to see how how it can go wrong. Um, so you don't have to be a great conspiracy theorist to have concerns about postal voting. And so that a large number of postal votes is a bit of a it's a bit of a wild card, and who knows how that will play out. Oh. Still, um, are quite um sceptical about them, aren't they? A lot of people. I I was doing some phone canvassing recently. It was about a month ago, and part of it was to try and persuade people to take up a 
postal vote and almost every single person I spoke to said no 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 I don't want a postal vote I'll be going and they weren't and some of them were young people they weren't necessarily older I'll I just stay near the polling station I'll be going to vote in person so it was quite interesting yeah I mean yeah. one thing I don't like about the you know, the whole postal voting system is um this, the whole issue of the signature, the signature has to match. I mean, my signature, I mean, I could write it a hundred <laughs> times and it would be different every single time. So I dislike that just instinctively. I think that's the problem. And I, it's just, I just, I would just feel happier going to the polling station. Yeah. I just feel more confident that my vote is actually going to count. Well, me, me too, James. Um, although I, I have, I did get a postal vote for the same reason as Val said, you know, yeah. if you, you just don't know, you might be isolating or something. Um, after I'd signed it, I took a photograph of it so that yeah. I do know what mine yeah. looks. Like, I know what I know. I've got yeah. to make it. I probably have to yeah. practice a few times. Actually, um, uh, that's exactly what I did today. I, I cast my my postal book today, and I I wrote out my signature twenty <laughs> times to try to make it look like yeah. what I had put on the application, and I still couldn't do it because yeah. it's just like your hand just sort of you know <laughs> it just sort of veers off when you try and do it, and you've you've only got one shot at it. Yeah, indeed. So going back to the turnout, what was it about? I'm kind of thinking it was about 60% in 2016, roughly. Oh, gosh, I actually late. can't remember. I'd have to is check that, that. Is that kind of... I, I don't know what you think with this. I always kind of have this hunch, which I could not justify with reasons, actually, uh, at all. But I, my kind of hunch is that if the turnout goes up, that in in my way of my, where the hunches come out, that will disproportionately benefit independence supporting people and I think the thing that is partly because it will be younger people who don't vote but they're the ones who do definitely support independence so I kind of think and if it goes up maybe that helps the indie parties but have you got any sense about about that? Yeah I, th I think that's broadly right Um, you know obviously 2015 was a particularly high turnout uh, and that was an SNP landslide in 2017 the perception was that there was like differential turnout and the people who didn't turn out were disproportionately SNP supporters because they weren't sort of sufficiently motivated. And that's why the SNP lost a truckload of seats. And then in 2019, that process was reversed and a lot of them come, came back. And so the SNP won quite heavily again. So, yeah, I think probably. And also, in you know, in uh, one of the sort of typical patterns of local council by-elections where you tend to get very low turnouts yeah. is that the Conservatives do particularly well. And so that's the sign that where you've got when nobody turns out, the Tories will still turn out. You know, if nobody else turns out, the Tories will still be there. I just checked the turnout in 2016, and it was exactly the same, both in the constituency and the list. It was 55.8%. That's not too bad. No, and that was a rise of 5.3% on previous turnout uh -huh. in 2011. And one we're conscious that your time's precious, James. No, that's fine. Much work. So, we've uh, got one last question from Miggs in our public online forum, and he says, "What in voting terms? What do you think would be a minimum mandate for a future Scottish government, majority or minority, with other independent supporting parties to move on an independence referendum?" If there is a mandate, Alex Salmond and Alba want it done immediately. The SNP and the Greens want to put it off up till later. What What do you think? What's your view? 
Well, I think 65 seats out of 129 is a mandate. I don't, I don't know. I mean, how else do you define it in a, in a parliamentary system? Of course, yeah. you just need a majority. That's all that should matter. Um, yeah. Okay, that's a definitive answer. Okay. So, James, um, one thing that we meant to mention at the start, which was very remiss of us, we'll to mention that at the moment you, you've got a crowdfunder underway, and I would really like to urge people to th- consider even if it's only a small amount, if a lot of people put in a small amount, that wouldn't preclude them from putting in a big amount, right enough. <laughs> yeah, an awful lot of good work. And um, I think people sometimes forget how difficult it is. So we would urge folk to support your crowdfunder. I'm sure they can find that really easily just by going onto your website. Yeah, yeah. I've plastered it all over the place, so it's hard to miss, yeah. <laughs> Scott goes pop dot. Scott or .com? It's uh, com. I've got an ancient blogspot blog, which I've had <laughs> since 2008, and people keep telling me to change it, but change. I never do. Uh-huh. <laughs> and also on Twitter and so on. You'll yeah. Uh-huh. So is there anything else you'd like to say before we let you escape? And Is there anything else that you, you would like to say to the listeners? Uh, any co- final comments on the election coming up? Oh, gosh. Hold on to your hats. God knows what's yeah. going to happen. Yeah, it could, could go in, it could go anyway. We could lose the majority. We could do fantastically well. Anything could happen. Yeah, exactly. And that's somebody like you who's very much in the know. You're not confident about predictions, so we'll just have to watch very carefully. And in how many weeks? Is it only two weeks now or three Yeah, it must be. Yeah, it must be about two at the moment. Two, yeah. Yeah. So it won't be too long. Fairly soon, uh, a few weeks, and we'll all be looking at these results. Well, listen, James Kelly from... Marlene Haldy and myself, thank you very much indeed for coming on and talking to us today. No problem. Thanks for having me on. So our next guest is Sir John Curtis, Professor Sir John Curtis. Um, Sir John's a political scientist, currently Professor of Politics at Strathclyde University. We know you're particularly interested in electoral behaviour and researching political social attitudes. And of course, you're a very well-kent face on UK uh, mainstream media, regular guest on the BBC and I'm sure other channels as well. Um, As well as that, I think in Scotland, some of us at least look on you as our own particular, you know, Scots political guru. So, Val, I think you've got a question to start us off. Is that right? Yes, I thought I'd just ask a very um, general question to Mm -hmm. begin with. I mean, we have heard a lot of your presentations um, and very um, informative. But one thing that struck myself and Marlene recently in talking to people this election coming up is hugely crucial the Holyrood election on May the 6th but how much do you think that election is is affected by the fact that a lot of people really don't understand the DeHaunt system and how it works do you think that has a significant impact on the outcome of the Holyrood election? Well, it clearly has implications for those on the nationalist side of the argument who are wondering whether or not to give both votes to the SNP, as the SNP are arguing, or whether the nationalist movement would be better off if they were to vote for somebody else on the list, uh, either the Greens or uh, for Alba. And 
yes, I think it's entirely correct to say that um, most does not confined to nationalist voters. It's true of both nationalist voters and of unionist voters that relatively few people understand the intricacies of the Dahon system. And of course, one of the difficulties is that at the end of the day, nobody can actually be sure what are the implications of people deciding to split their vote. Um, because if you're talking about a political party that might be able to pick up one list seat in one or more regions, what you've got to know is who would get the seventh seat in the Dehont allocation if you were not to stand in that region. And the honest truth is, is that you cannot know what the answer to that question is going to be in any region. What is true, of course, is that given that um, it seems likely that both the Conservatives and the Labour Party are going to be much more dependent on list seats uh, than are certainly the SNP or indeed the Liberal Democrats, um, uh, then there's a greater probability in any region that the last the, the list seat that might otherwise have gone to another party uh, is indeed a unionist party and that therefore with the Greens standing and with the Alba standing, then maybe you end up with more pro-nationalist MSPs. But I mean, to give you some idea, I mean, you know, in doing the mind-numbing calculation, <laughs> the Dehont calculation on a couple of recent polls and kind of making some, uh, basically using the polls to work out where apparently um, uh, Alba are doing relatively well, um, so I, I'm taking the, I mean, you know, most of the polls suggest it's just not doing well enough to do anything very much other than perhaps to pick up the odd seat. But panel base, of course, have put them at 6% twice. So if you take that poll um, and crunch through the numbers, then basically what you discover, well, in one case, it was potentially worth six seats. In the other case, it was potentially worth five seats. But uh, of those seats, in each case, two of them, were probably at the expense of either the SNP or the Greens. All right? So the net impact on the number of pro-independence MPs is relatively small. And of course, then we come to the other side of the coin. Now, I, I'm aware this long been a debate within the nationalist movement. I heard Dave Thompson talk about this way back last autumn um, as to whether or not... Um, uh, the nationalist movement is strengthened by allowing a thousand flowers to bloom and to have lots of uh, pro-independence MSPs, but not necessarily uh, from the same political party, or whether the nationalist movement is going to be stronger if indeed the SNP dominate its representation, and indeed in particular, whether or not the SNP get an overall majority um, because some people would argue that if they get the overall majority, then the UK government will be put under pressure because the precedent of 2011 will capable of being cited. Now, the truth is, at the end of the day, those on the national side of the argument will have to decide for themselves which of these two stratagems, trying to maximise the total number of uh, nationalist uh, pro-independence MSPs, or uh, the SNP getting the overall majority, is more likely to result in a referendum that might eventually lead to independence. That's a judgment at the end of the day that voters can have to take. But certainly um, understanding the Dehont system uh, will make it easier for you to get to grapple with that. But I think the truth is, if you understand the Dehont system, 
even if you do, at the end of the day, it's, it's frankly, it's a political judgment. It's a political judgment as to how well do you think the SNP are going to do in the constituencies yeah. and what difference it would or would not make as to whether or not you get uh, rather more uh, pro-independence MSPs or the SNP getting over majority. And the truth is, none of us know the answer to that question. No, not indeed. Um, is it is it possible to... Do some sort of approximation to just at what point the SNP become more vulnerable to tactical voting like that. Because, you know, back in the autumn, they were polling it over 50 percent in the yeah. constituencies. And now they're down on that. That must make a difference. I'm yeah, I thinking. mean, basically, um, if the SNP are down to about 47, 48 then, you know, and frankly, you know, none of it can get, you know, because 73 seats are decided first past the post, you know, at the end of the day, it just depends on how the cookie crumbles in the individual constituencies. But um, if you assume that the geography of party support is the same as it was in 2016, um, and again, depending a little bit about the split between the Conservatives and the Labour Party, yeah, right, which also makes a difference. But once the SNP are down to around 47% or so, then it might be, well be the case that they might just need one or two list seats in order to get to 65, all right? Yeah. Uh, in contrast, if they are above 50%, then in theory, they should make it on the constituencies alone, and therefore what happens in the list will be irrelevant. Now, that said, however, I mean, just bear in mind that in one or two constituencies, I mean, just take the Labour Party, for example. I mean, Jackie Bailey should not have won Dumbarton in 2016, but she still managed to hang on. You know, Edinburgh Southern, you know, the Liberal Democrat vote collapsed to Labour's advantage. So again, uh, 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 that did not go to the SNP in a way that otherwise would have done. And, you know, again, what's going to happen in individual constituencies is very uncertain. It's also the case that the Scotland in Union campaign at least is trying to persuade people to vote tactically in the constituencies. But the no, truth is, there aren't that many constituencies where it's going to make that much of a difference because there's so many constituencies where the SNP are a long way ahead. But in one or two places, it could just make a difference. And again, therefore, the SNP might just be dependent on the list vote. So, I mean, I, I mean, more broadly, I would say to you, given the evidence of the polls I've seen so far, and bearing in mind all the uncertainties that surround, you know, how votes in the constituency section will get translated into seats. I would say the sensible way to think about it at the moment is there's probably a 50% chance of the SNP making it, given at the moment what looks like a relatively high level of support for the Greens, uh, but a relatively low level of support for Alba. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Could I ask you a question, um, Professor Curtis? And that is, you mentioned there, you know, the nationalist side and then the tactical voting um, on the unionist side. I've got a question here from Jerry Mulvena, and he's very interested in Catalonian politics, and also he is from uh, from the north of Ireland. And his question is to do with the binary nature of the political landscape in Scotland with parties clearly defined along constitutional lines. And he says it contrasts starkly with what has developed over the years in Catalonia and the north of Ireland with Podem and On Commune and the Alliance Party respectively occupying constitutionally neutral ground. Yep. 
Do you have any insight into why political parties in Scotland remain so binary and there aren't any parties that, at the moment, anyway? (laughs) Part of the answer to that is this is not a case of them still being so binary, but actually Scottish politics is now more binary than it ever has been, right? Uh Um, I mean, you know, remind you, back in 2011, uh, the reason why the SNP got an overall majority is not because 45% of people at that point, point in time were in favour of independence, which is what the, the SNP's constituency vote was. It was because nearly 40% of those people who at that point in time were in favour of devolution rather than independence voted for the SNP, and they did so primarily on the grounds of, well, these guys seem to have done a reasonably good job in the last four years, and we're not really quite sure that the Labour Party, who of course fought a disastrous campaign under Ian Gray, um, are really up to the job. So they basically won, won it on competence, they did stand up for Scotland's interest. And frankly, it was really only very much in the last, almost probably in the last week of the campaign. All of a sudden, people detected the mood changing. And you know, nobody was more surprised than the SNP themselves at winning an overall majority um, uh, uh, back in 2011. But the crucial point is that, therefore, at that point in time, which in part, of course, is the point of the SNP's promise of a referendum. Part of the reason why the SNP promised a referendum is in order to take the question of independence off the ballot paper so far as election is concerned. However, those days are over. If you look at the polls now, you're looking at nearly 90% of those people who say they would vote yes in an independence referendum, saying they are going to vote for the SNP on the constituencies. And then if they're going to vote for somebody else on the list, you know, it's the Greens primarily, or maybe Alba. And only around 9% of those people who say they would currently vote uh, no in an independence referendum, saying that they will vote for the SNP. Um, and it's never been that stark. Right? Even if you go back to 2016, you only had about four-fifths of uh, current independent supporters saying they were voting for the SNP, and you got about 20% of uh, opponents of independent supporters. So Scotland's uh, 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 choice has become even more binary. Now, what's also uh, what's going behind, behind this, what's, what's also true is that the character of support for independence has changed. And it's changed essentially because of Brexit, all right? Back, you know, one of the ironies of the 2014 independence referendum is that despite all that endless argument that we had about whether or not an independent Scotland would be able to be a continuing member of the European Union or not, where the SNP said they would and the UK government said they wouldn't, it was all a complete waste of time because actually there was no relationship at all between whether or not you voted yes or no and your attitudes towards the European Union. And indeed, as you'll perfectly well know, there's always been an element of uh, people who support the SNP and who support independence in Scotland, who, despite the SNP's um, change of stance on the European Union in the late 80s, early 90s, have stuck to the view that what's the point of liberating ourselves from London only to put ourselves in chains to Brussels, all right? And even if you go to the 2016 EU referendum, you discover that those people who voted yes were no more and no less likely to vote remain than were those people who voted no, all right? So again, even in 2016, independent the, the, the question of Brexit and the question of independence cut across each other right yeah, yeah. after 2016 what you see is the electorate being resorted all right so 
As the nationalist movement anticipated, it was true that some people who voted um, no and remain switched to yes. But for a long time, they were being counterbalanced by another group of people who had voted yes and leave, who uh, were then in favour of no. And who, by the way, defected from the SNP in large numbers in 2017. And that is the principal reason why the SNP lost ground in 2017. It was not the row about IndyRef2. It was the fact that the Brexit uh, uh, vote disrupted, seriously disrupted, the nationalist vote uh, in the immediate uh, post-Brexit period. However, in the longer term, it's resulted in the increase in support. I mean, the increase in support for independence, in tw- which became registered in the polls in 2019 and carried through in 2020, that is basically in wholly and entirely the consequence of Brexit. Okay, all of the rise in support for independence that occurred at that uh, it, it was first registered in the polls in 2019 occurred amongst those who voted Remain. So what you've now got is a situation where basically, therefore. It's not. It's no longer just one constitutional issue. It's two issues being intertwined with each other. As a result of that, um, uh, well, well, I mean, a few other things have happened. Uh, um, uh, one is that now people who, I mean, people who support the SNP are much look much more like the civic nationalists to which the SNP aspire. Than perhaps was the case ten years ago. All right, yeah. because because the people who support Remain tend to be social liberals and they're relatively liberal on issues like immigration, etc. You now discover that whereas um, whether or not you were a social liberal or social conservative made virtually no difference to your attitudes towards independence. Now the independence movement is also uh, like Brexit um, divided. By between social liberals and social concerns, and then there's one other thing that's changed over the course of the last ten years. Well, two other things that were well, one other thing has changed over the course of the last ten years, and that is that as support for independence has grown, unsurprisingly, it has grown disproportionately amongst those with a strong sense of Scottish identity. Okay, so support for independence is now very much linked to those people who feel wholly or predominantly Scottish. There is some of it amongst those who say they are British, but it's not grown into anything like the same extent. So you're now looking at a position where support for independence is now more clearly rooted in a sense of Scottish identity. It's it's now linked to people's uh, attitude towards Brexit. It's also linked to whether people are socially or socially conservative. It's also the case... And it's always been the case to some degree that people on the left are slightly more likely to support it than on the right. So you've now got all of these dimensions in which the nationalist unionist divide uh, is dividing Scotland. So it's not just simply a constitutional issue. It's tapping people's uh, attitudes towards Brexit, immigration, left versus right, and people's sense of identity. So we are therefore looking at a situation where the constitutional question really polarizes people yes, yes. Uh, meanwhile i mean what's also very very clearly the case i mean it, it, we know that back in 2012 2013 that there was quite a um note of steam between the idea that was then called devo max 
Um, and quite a lot of polls said that if you had that on the ballot paper, it might end up being the most popular option. Well, in the end, both sides decided to play, decided to play poker and we're, we're, we didn't have it on the ballot paper. The difficulty now is it just looks as though, because of all that polarization, that the ship has sailed out of the harbour and, you know, federalism stroke Devo, Mar Devo Max has been left on the jetty, right? And there have been some polls recently that have said people, well, you know, if you had a three-way referendum between independence, the status quo, and, uh, you know, a, a solution where, you know, Scotland basically runs all its domestic affairs or something similar, it's now coming third. So, I, you know... But the, you know, given also the way in which now we've got a UK government which is much more robust in its attitudes towards devolution, much less respectful of it than any previous administration, including previous Conservative administrations, you know, we've now also got so clearly a sharply politicised divide between you know Conservatives and the SNP. And of course, the Conservative, you, know, you have to also understand the Conservatives are on the other side of all these divides. You know, the growth of the Conservatives in Scotland is very, very much embedded in the Leave vote, right? The Conservative vote in Scotland is much weaker amongst those with a strong sense of Scottish identity. So you've now got two parties at opposite ends of the spectrum on, again, these multiple uh, ideology, ideological divides and uh, different, sense, different senses of identity. Yeah, that's... Um, I think you've just gone through about three of our next questions, actually, oh, there. Not. So that, that, that's... No, no, that's fine. We've got plenty more, more left to do. I mean, that, that sounds like what you just said is that the, the character of the independence voting um, population in Scotland's changed quite significantly yeah. then. Yeah, and, that, and that's also, of course, you also then see it in the demographics. So yes. although it was true back in 2014... The, well, the, the, the oldest section of our society were the least likely to vote in favour yeah. of yes. And it's probably true that, you know, something like, you know, under 60s or under 55s, the majority vote, voted yes. But on the other hand, it wasn't clearly the case at that time that the level of support was highest uh, amongst those in their, in their late teens and 20s. It seemed to be highest amongst those in their 30s. That's now no longer the case. Um, I mean, I've had reason to go through all the polls for somebody uh, for, for this election. You're basically now, it's a pretty fairly clear picture. Under 35, about 70% support for independence. Yep. Yep. Between 35 and 55, it's about 50-50. Over 55, it's about 30-70. So we've now got a very clear age divide. Well, of course, given the relationship between age and attitudes towards Brexit, right? And given also equally the relationship between age and uh, being more likely to be uh, socially liberal, this is an inevitable consequence of the restructuring and support for independence in the wake of Brexit. And of course, the other thing that's happened, though I've, though I've not as yet tied down exactly where it's happened. I mean, you know, it's pretty clear back in 2014 that men were more likely to vote for independence than women. That's now largely disappeared from the polls, uh, perhaps in part at least because, of course, Whereas in 2014, the debate was between do we want to choose a different future or a status quo? Because of Brexit, there is no status quo. It's a choice between two uncertain futures. Then insofar as it was being argued in 2014 that perhaps women are more risk averse. Well, now we can have interesting debates about which of the two choices facing Scotland um, is the riskier option. Can I go back? 
to something that you said earlier. Um, and we have a question from Steve Callahan, who's um, in Danoon and who's listened to you talking quite a lot recently. And he said that he that you you mentioned there about people um, who voted to remain, and that that caused a spike in independence support. Because for people who were um, not keen, to, who voted remain, but saw their wishes thwarted, if you like. Yeah. Um, and his point is that most people tend to adapt to a status quo. So the outrage of leaving the EU has subsided for some um, who've converted to independence. And now that we've been out of the EU for four months, do you think that those who initially switched due to what he calls post-exit anger uh, but I've now accepted the situation. Do you think they may, a lot of them may now re have returned to their previous position on the union? Or do you think there might be further converts to independence? Uh, there's absolutely no sign of that happening um, uh, so far. Um, let me give you an idea here. I can just um, look at some slides that um, I was preparing for a, a, a talk tomorrow. So back in um 2019 so if we take if we take november december 2019 by which stage you know we're looking at 49 51 in the mm -hmm. polls um 55 percent of people who'd voted remain uh, were saying they'd vote yes at that point in time 30 percent of leavers the equivalent figures for the polls conducted in the last two months is still 55 amongst remain it's just crept up to 32 percent amongst those who voted leave. The, the gap uh, that opened up was already there by 2018, but opened up even further in 2019 is basically still there. I mean, what is true is that during the course of last year, when support for independence was running at around 53, 54% for a while, there, the, that didn't seem to have anything to do with Brexit. That, that then Support then rose amongst both Remain voters and Leave voters, but the gap between them just remained the same. And I, you know, I think more broadly, I mean, I take the view basically that there isn't a great deal of evidence so far across the UK as a whole that the Brexit divide has disappeared. It's true that neither Labour nor the Liberal Democrats are willing at the moment to fight the pro-Remain anti-Brexit corner, despite the fact that both these parties are very heavily dependent on Remain voters, and despite the fact, and I published something about this a couple of weeks ago, there's no evidence at all that Labour's attempt to try to uh, uh, get back so-called Red Wall voters in the North and Midlands of England by basically shutting up on Brexit is having any success at all. The Labour Party's uh, support um, has never um, shown any signs of increasing more amongst Leave voters than amongst Remain voters, and Labour is essentially very heavily dependent on Remain voters, and that's why it's going to do well in London and why it's one of the reasons why uh, the Labour Party is um, still struggling to get second place uh, uh, north of the border. So, I, I, But of course, you know, the SNP will still quite happily say we're opposed to Brexit. This is why we want an independence referendum, etc. So north of the border, at least, um, voters are still getting the stimulus yeah. from the SNP to say that we think that Brexit's a bad idea. Um, et cetera, et cetera. And in a sense, you know, I think the honest truth is, you know, one of the ways of thinking of the, the uh, uh, Scottish election is it is really the next chapter in Britain's uncertain Brexit story, because it's up here where 
the issue is live and where it's potentially going to turn into a serious constitutional clash between the UK and the Scottish governments. When you say that, are you implying that, um, say we look ahead, um, Scotland is independent, negotiating in some way to get back into at least a single market. Are you saying that then that would have a big knock-on effect as to what might happen down in England as regards their Brexit stance? Um, I think that if Scotland were to hold a referendum in which they voted to leave leave, um, uh, the United Kingdom, um, uh, and given that it would be pretty clear that this is a consequence of Brexit, um, one suspects that the current reticence reticence of Labour and the Democrats about um, Brexit will come to a halt. Because it basically will, I mean, you know, you know, from that circumstance, what would have been the long-term consequence of Brexit? It would have been to result in the breakup of the United yes. Kingdom. This is disastrous for the Tories. It's not in the United Kingdom's strategic interest, et cetera, et cetera. And in those circumstances, you know, the, the, the truth is that it's not, it's, I mean, it's long not been clear that there's actually a pro-leave majority left inside the UK. I mean, that's essentially because yeah. people who didn't vote in 2016 have uh, turned out to be somewhat uh, pro-remain. But I think, you know, that would just, I mean, you know, the way in which that would throw the apple cart into British, into English and Welsh politics would be, you know, very difficult to forecast, but clearly um, is going to almost bound to lead Labour to um, uh, lead it to uh, question the whole merits of the Brexit enterprise. And in a sense, of course, the SNP would have to hope that that would be the case because... Um, if there was some prospect of the rest of the UK rejoining the European Union, then that rather nasty issue, which is going to arise uh, in any immediate referendum, about what do you do about the border between Gretna and Berwick, if indeed an independent Scotland wants to get back into the EU single market, is going to be a rather difficult one for the uh, independence movement to negotiate. Yes, it is. It is indeed. Um, that's fascinating. That's just so fascinating. Um Maybe we should go back to uh, you know what's happening on the on the ground as it were here at the moment. So we've actually got to you know get this uh, election uh, uh, done. And we've got a question from uh, Ian, who uh, I know he's one of the members of Dumfries and Galloway Pensioners for Independence. Mm-hmm. Um, how he, so? The question is: How many people actually change their votes? in an election so obviously outcomes change but to what is that to what extent is that a result of numbers of people choosing to not to vote combined with another small group deciding to exercise their choice in a rather different way i mean that can bring about wholesale change but you know how many people actually change their votes well the the answer to is that it's long been the case that I mean, if you go back to the very earliest research done uh, in the UK in the 1950s on this, that discovered somewhat to, be, to, the, to the, uh, uh, the researcher's surprise. But that's even at that stage, and we think of the 1950s as a relatively stable period in British politics, and these were, these were constituencies in England, um, about 25% of people were changing their minds. Now, a lot of that, yes, is people moving into an out-of-don't-know stroke, not going to bother. Uh, so there's always been potential in the British electorate to be volatile. 
Um, that said, I mean, more recent academic research has suggested that um, the electorate, if anything, has become has become markedly more volatile. And certainly, you know, again, because of Brexit, on both sides of the border, an awful lot of people are now supporting a different political party, not necessarily from the one that they were supporting last year, but from one that they were supporting five or six years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, lots of people have changed their minds in that respect. Uh, so, um, you know, there is... We, we, we've arguably never always ha- had that stable electorate, but very often, as it were, the, the, the toing and froing has just cancelled out. Um, I mean, so far, I mean, I mean, we don't really know so far in this election campaign whether or not uh, the toing and froing is making much difference because we had a whole clutch of polls at the beginning of the campaign and then we've had a bit of a yeah. hiatus. Yeah. And we'll wait and see whether the campaign is actually making any difference or not. And of course, the ability of the politicians to reach out to the electorate is being constrained by by, by the pandemic. Um, so, um, I mean, so there's always plenty of opportunity. You know, there's always people making up their minds at the last minute. It's always a non-trivial group of people, but very often net effect close to zero, but not always. Sometimes we get dramatic changes. And certainly over the longer term, we've certainly seen voters willing to change their minds particularly on the Brexit issue, because basically you know, what, what is true, far more people on both sides of the argument think, feel strongly about Brexit than they do about a political party. Yeah, yeah. OK, well, that brings us to, to another question, because, um, that, well, I suppose it's a whole thing about tactical voting. And yeah. although there's been such a, a loud conversation about it especially last year or maybe it's 18 months now actually it's not in itself a a new debate but we've now got the point where we've got this word super majority I mean before that there was max the vote and all of our party are brought in super majority but what's the question is what difference does it make having say 90 MSPs supporting independent independence rather than 70 yeah well indeed i guess that is the that is a sixty-four thousand dollar question that um you should pose to mr salmon if you're having my <laughs> on, on 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 your program um uh and um i have to say that for some of us it's not entirely clear particularly given that you know it's uh, it's pretty clear that you would only well, a in getting 90 MSPs, you will have done it by effectively gaming the system and, yeah. and cutting across what was the purpose of the of, of the system, which is to come up with a result that's roughly proportional. You know, give, you know, if one accepts that basically um, a half of the country is in favour of independence and the other half isn't, a result in which we have at most slightly more pro. Uh, independence, uh, independence MSPs than oppose would seem to be a reasonable outcome. Now, of course, the truth is that in practice that because um, now you know, we, we can't be entirely sure which way it works. There are clearly some people who are green supporters who vote for the SNP on the constituencies because they can't do so. Um, but equally, you know, there are also some people who are who are voting tactically. So it's kind of it, it's a mixture of these two things. But the fact that the, the, the SNP are potentially capable of mopping up all of the independence vote on the constituencies, whereas it is fragmented on the union side. And then maybe 
we do end up with some uh, list MSPs, you know, for the Greens, you know, just leaving aside Alba. You know, that yeah. that strategic difference itself gives the nationalist movement a strategic advantage. Um, I mean, it's worth thinking more broadly about this. I, I mean, I like to point out to people that there is a an interesting parallel between what happened in the Brexit debate and where we find ourselves in the uh, constitutional debate north of the border. Why in the end did the United Kingdom leave the European Union? It left the European Union because Boris Johnson uh, pulled, uh, seized the bull by the horns, um, ne negotiated a slightly different deal from the one of Theresa May, um, and then went out and succeeded in uniting the Leave vote behind him. And about 79% of all the people who are currently in favour of leaving the United Kingdom voted for uh, the Conservatives and about 4% voted for the Brexit Party. Um, uh, 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 and so uh, conversely, on the other side of the fence, well, during 2019, the only thing upon which the Remainers could agree was that they didn't want to leave the EU without a deal. But whether they wanted Norway, Norway plus, Norway minus, Switzerland, a special relationship, a second referendum, and a second referendum with or without uh, a clear governmental commitment to campaign in favour of Remain, on none of that could they agree. Result, vote, split in England and Wales between Labour and the Democrats and North of the Border you know, with the SNP. Ergo, Boris wins the election, even though only 47% of people vote in favour of parties that are well, in favour of Brexit. And, you know, we do have a similar situation here now. I mean, I've taken the view that um, I think a strategic strength of the nationalist movement in Scotland, broadly speaking, is that it is largely united behind the SNP but that provides it with a strategic advantage, whereas unionism is seriously fragmented between the Conservatives and the Labour Party. As a result of that, unionists don't really quite agree as to what their stance is about holding a second mm -hmm. referendum, other than that they agree it's not desirable. They certainly don't agree, which was very clear during the 2014 campaign, about what vision would they hold out for the governance of Scotland within the framework of the United Kingdom and in what ways the union will be organised in or, and run in order to ensure that Scotland prospered. And at the moment, they probably could not agree with each other as to who the hell should be leading the no campaign, all right? <laughs> these are pretty... These they yeah. are strikingly similar yeah, yeah. To, the, to, the, to the divisions within the Remain movement, um, whereas on the, on the national side, you know, it, 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 it's largely altogether. So the fact, basically, you've got the SNP with virtually everybody who's a yes supporter, and that's half the country voting for it, major advantage in the constituency contest, right? Such that that in itself may be a little majority. And then the fact, actually, yes, some people do go off and wander, uh, wander off and vote for the Greens, does actually mean that you, you do end up with, in terms of the constitutional question, a disproportional outcome, even without Alex Salmon's intervention, right? Yes, yes. So... Um, yeah, um, I, you know, I, 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 it's but um, whether or not Boris Johnson's boots will quake more from a um, ninety as opposed to seventy. 
difficult to say. I shall be say the case needs to be made by those who believe in that point uh, of view. In, in, indeed, and, and, that, and again, that's a really fascinating comparison between the constitutional question up here and, and what it was like down uh, down south for, well, in the UK for, for Brexit. By, by the way, we, we did have Alex Salmond on the programme last week and we, we asked him that question about, you know, what a supermajority was and he... He thought it, he thought he thought it would be a really big advantage to have uh, a ninety you know MSPs, but then he would he would say that, wouldn't he? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think most people would say the normal definition of a supermajority is two thirds, um, yeah. and that, for example, for some, I mean, for example, the ability, if I remember correctly, the ability of the Scottish Parliament to change, although the Scottish Parliament now has the right to change its electoral system, it needs a two thirds majority. Uh, uh, to do so, and th- th- this is not uncommon in um, you know where, where you've got a constitution which you want to entrench um, to say that you know it, it can only be changed if you have a two-thirds majority in the legislature or whatever. Or in the case of the you know the U.S. Constitution, it's, it, it's two-thirds of all the yeah. states, if I remember correctly. So two-thirds is a very common, as it were, supermajority threshold, um, and it has to be said that even the panel-based polling does not suggest that um, the intervention of the other party is going to get us anywhere close to that. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Well, um, Professor Curtis, you've been extremely generous with your time and talking to us today. We do appreciate it. I wonder if we could just ask you one little tiny last question. Uh, It's always Uh, the little tiny uh, ones. ones. (laughs) (laughs) It's from Rosalind Faults here in Glasgow in Kelvindale, and she um, wanted to know about polling. There's so many polls and there people are waiting for the next one. She was asking, do you think polls should be banned in the run-up period to elections? Um, and she, she was wondering, how, is that the case in some countries? She mentioned France. Yeah. Are you, are you okay. I, I, look, at this point, I have to declare an interest. Uh, <laughs> for my sins, I am the president <laughs> of the British Polling Council, and I, 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 which is a organisation that promotes transparency in the publication of polls and tries to improve standards of reporting. Um, I, I am not employed by any polling company, but I have close links with all of them. So you need to understand that, okay? Yeah. Um, uh, but in any case, I could also say, say honestly, I do not support the banning of opinion polls. Um, for I mean, for, for a, a, a couple of reasons. One is that I think that the public are entitled to have information. I mean, in you know, in an in a honest, if imperfect attempt to try to identify where the balance of opinion is. And in a sense, it's arguably more important, you know, when we start talking about people's attitudes and anything else. But you know, I think it's important to have that because otherwise, basically, if you say you can't have opinion polls, every politician in the land can claim, I think that what people believe is this. And there is no way that the people can look anywhere to find out whether or not that is what the people think or not. All right. So it's a of keeping uh, as a way of keeping our politicians honest. The second reason is at the end of the day, or while you can attempt to ban the publication of opinion polls, you cannot ban in a free society their conduct. um, Because even with, you know, now given that they, um, mostly get done online. I mean, the pandemic hasn't stopped political polling because it doesn't involve any uh, public health issues at all. 
Um, but so therefore, what you end up with potentially is a situation in which those people who have access to polls, like hedge funds, if they think it's worth their money, or political parties who often do do private polling, do have inside information on what's going on, and the rest of us don't, and indeed on the back of that, some of them may be able to make money. Indeed, I can tell you the story of a former um, a tutor of mine when I was at university. His particular specialism was French politics. Um, and this was indeed in the days when polls in France were banned for a period of some days before a polling day. He, however, acquired access to the private polling of the Socialist Party. I think this is when uh, Mitterrand first became president. And he um, phoned up his wife back home, because this is the days anyway you could get hold of anybody in another country, <laughs> and said, put money on the bookies for Mitterrand to win. And that's how he financed and that's how he financed his research trip, right? <laughs> now, in that case, you know, it was for a benign purpose, but you know, anyway. So, um, so, so the point, so the point is, therefore, you create an inside market yeah, in yeah, information. Okay. Yeah. But in any case, also at the end of the day, that is potentially in the, in the day of the internet, actually you can't even ban the publication of opinion polls. Because in France now, it's down just to the last 24 hours, which you can make an argument. Because basically what they discovered happened is that people who had polls just um, got a domain name with a Swiss, um, uh, from, from, from a, with, with, a, with a Swiss uh, URL, yeah. uh, just published on there, right? So you, you, governments can publish can ban the publication of polls in their own countries. But the point is, the, these days, um, you, can, you can publish anything on and in other countries' jurisdiction, and there's nothing you can stop. Well, I mean, unless you're the Chinese government, you, can, you can't stop people accessing it, right? Mm -hmm. so, so there are still some countries that attempt to do it, but there's been a tendency for the length of time to be reduced because, as it were... If you make it 24 hours, I mean, particularly, particularly if you've got um, polling on a Sunday, as many people do, and you might then say, well, let's just make Saturday a, a, a day of reflection. And in those circumstances, everybody may be willing to play ball. Yeah. yeah. Right? Okay. Because it becomes, it becomes a social convention. But um, it's very, very reliant on that now. Yeah. yeah, that's a really comprehensive answer to Rosalind's question. So, as I said, Marlene and I are extremely grateful to you for giving us your precious time today and speaking to us here on Indie Live Radio. And we'd also like to thank our radio team colleague, um, Michael McEwen, who put us in touch with you. And uh, thank you very much indeed, Professor Sir John Curtis. Okay, you're welcome. Nice to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. Bye. Okay, no problem. Bye. 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 And then I got